This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? It is 9.36 a.m. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Anwar Mahbob. This is WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. It is, of course, the last Friday before Christmas, so a lot of festive cheer is in the air. I'm wondering, what would be your favorite feature of this holiday season, guys? What uh, do you look forward to, I suppose, at this time of year? I guess the food, mince pies, Christmas pudding. That's right. You have an affiliation for mince pies. I remember this. Very hard to find. And it was deceiving, right? Everything's mince pies is actually meat, but it's actually not. It's currants, berries, and lots of goodness. Oh, that shows your personality. I'm all about the gifts, guys. (laughs) (laughs) The bigger, the better. The nicer, the better. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm more than that. It's about celebration with family and friends. Uh Get together. Sure. For me, it's a significant religious festival. So yeah, church going is important. Mm -hmm. And just sitting down and enjoying meals with family and friends. I really enjoy that part of the season as well. And of course, for me, it's really a toss-up between um, the music because it's that one time of the year when it doesn't sound strange when you sing Jingle Bells out loud and also the decorations because everything is so beautifully decorated with lots of silver and spangles and I like sparkly things. But in any case, uh, what we're going to be discussing this morning, we've got a lot of different issues that uh, we're going to highlight that came out through the week and uh, one of the themes of 2023 is of course generative AI. All the analysts including Dan Ives of Wedbush whom we spoke to earlier this morning, they are ever bullish on the use case potential of AI but what's going to be close Closely watched moving forward is the extent to which AI can be given legal rights. And this was the subject of a case in the UK Supreme Court this week, which ruled that AI cannot patent inventions. No, this can open, open, open up a plug gate because the IPO's office said that, you know, an inventor has to be a natural person and AI is, a, is not a natural person. So uh, it, you to invent something requires a lot of human thinking going on. You can't, and you know, it'd be deceptive if you use AI to create something. You just switch on the computer, let the computer do their thinking, and you're claiming what? You're an inventor? Let's take a bit of a step back and maybe explain the case right. Because it comes from a technologist, Dr. Stephen Thaler, who sought to have his AI, whom he calls Dabas, recognized as the inventor of a food container and a flashing light beacon. So we know with generative AI, I mean, we've all used ChatGPT, right? What you do I is, haven't. You haven't? Well, no. what you do is, if you go into ChatGPT, you give them a prompt. And you can really give them any prompt. Is that prompt. what y'all have been doing? Is the work that y'all are doing here, like, really done by y'all then? I plead the fifth. But in any case, you give them a prompt and it could be something in, in, for example, write a song in the voice of Shakespeare, you know, and they will come up with the song with Shakespearean language. And the idea is, can that uh, thing be patented or can it be trademarked, right? So in this case, um, the UK Supreme Court has said that no, even though yeah, what, what's been generated, it, even AI, doesn't count as a legal person in which to give those patent rights to. And this is not the first time this scientist has tried to do so, right? Uh, this Stephen Teller, because he did, uh, he actually lost a similar bid in the United States where the Supreme Court actually declined to hear a challenge to the US Patent and Trademarks Office refusal to issue him these patents in the first place. So it looks like globally, uh, the two largest markets, US and UK, are saying, look, you know, this... This cannot be uh, something that's created 
by artificial intelligence cannot be considered patent. And I, I'm relieved somewhat because there'll be no end. And, and truly, what are you patenting then? Right. So in that sense, yeah, I guess the, it sent, it puts somewhat of a, re- of a red line or a guardrail, at least, in terms of the extent this can go. Because I, I feel that the discussion on AI really has complicated on who gets to be determined as the creator of something, whether mm. it's a work of art or whether it's a, a product. And we see this very much in the discussions around AI and art or generative AI platforms that use art, that, that create art. And you know that artists are up in arms because what the AI does is it draws from this massive bank of artworks across the internet and then create something new but if it's mimicking uh, the style or the works of other artists what does that mean where does the credit go to basically the law is saying that you know at the end of the day when it comes to intellectual property rights it can only reside with a natural person it cannot reside with ai which is at this moment seen as as a tool not as a like an agent but what is interesting is that going forward will that mindset change right will we evolve we're already talking about um, AI becoming sentient. There are mm. scientists that have voiced this development. You know, Scary world, Terminator, but never mind. <laughs> well, on that note, let's flip over to the next story on our list. So we've been going through the year-end lists and mentions of different publications. And I think today we'd like to spotlight The Economist's Country of the Year. Now, fun fact, Malaysia was in the list of contenders back in 2018 when the first ever change of government took place in 60 years. Uh, if we look at the states that made the running this year, there are a lot of different states that uh, The Economist has highlighted for different reasons, and we'll go through some of them. Okay, but let me highlight something also, which is that The Economist was rather depressed by the state of the world, so much so that they almost proposed Barbie Land. <laughs> okay, because it was clearly the bright spot in what they say, a bleak world. Uh, Barbie Land, of course, is the fictional pink utopia of a Hollywood blockbuster Uh, But, of course, they can't nominate a fictional country. Unfortunately, no. No. So uh, there are some criteria when they look at it. And there were actually three. So the first were basically places that stood up to bullying by autocratic neighbours. So one of which, of course, is Ukraine for obvious reasons. And the country, of course, continues to... Uh, fend off Russia. It's what? It's 400 days into this unfortunate war that's been put upon them. And I think Moldova is another one that's also resisted Russian intimidation. I would argue that Gaza also has a place in that list, but of course it's not in the economist list. Uh, what other countries uh, were highlighted by them? Well, second group countries that defended democracy or liberal values at home include Liberia, Timor Leste, which is an interesting point as well. But going back to the first point about Ukraine, Finland, Philippines, I mean, it looks like these these countries were leaning towards the America more than Russia. So I want to stress that one point out. Well, you wouldn't want to lean towards Russia, right, if you were worried about being invaded by them. So I think that's the point where the odds are against you, but you make a stand. And I mean, Finland is being one where previously they never considered joining NATO, but yet they realise now the importance of being part of a greater greater group of, of countries and standing to get together against what could be a common and en- what is a common enemy mm. that doesn't respect natural uh, boundaries nationwide uh, basically sovereignty 
Absolutely. And I think um, another uh, group of countries that they also uh, spotlighted was those that uh, made a turn to moderation, very much uh, different from, I suppose, the right-wing right wing, uh, turn that many countries have taken. But countries like Brazil um, and also, well, they actually don't name Brazil. There was, mm. was there anyone? Poland as well, I think, uh, yeah. took a rather, took a turn for moderation um, in contrast to other countries. Uh, but none of these countries really were named country of the year, right? Who was no. the ultimate winner? the land of that has a long history uh, Greece so <laughs> just a bit of um, a walk back in history if you wind back to 2008 uh, you know basically it was a country that was crippled by by debt ridicule on Wall Street income set plunge the social contract was fraying there was of course extreme extremist parties on the left and the right that were wet rampant and it was a, a country in desperation. I remember that. And there was so much talk about the European Union even breaking up as a result of what was happening in Greece. But the one that broke away was, of course, the United Kingdom, not so much Greece. That's right. Uh, but this year, Greece topped the economist ranking of rich world countries. Uh, this is because it's got a centre-right government re-elected in June. Its foreign policy is pro-American, pro-EU and wary of Russia. And they can show that even though you're on the verge of collapse, it is possible to make a U-turn and do much better. And I, it's a lesson to everyone that reforms take time. I mean, we were talking about this, what, 10 years ago, and mm. only now do we re- can we see the benefits being reaped of those very difficult decisions once taken. So we need to have that long runway, that longer term trajectory in terms of vision uh, to see these reforms through. I think The Economist also t- basically brings home the point that this is something important to remember because in 2024, half of the world is due for elections. So how will they pick? Indeed, indeed. We're going to see elections closer to home in Indonesia, for example, also in Taiwan. Lots of things to look for in 2024. But before we head into a break, let's take a look at a, a story uh, involving one of Shaoning's favourite luxury brands. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's be clear. I didn't pick this story. You did not pick no, this no, story. No, no, no. Our one and only Philip C. picked it, which I find kind of strange because he has absolutely no green thumbs Ooh, and probably can't tell the difference between a, a Birkin Kelly garden party. I'm he wouldn't know what those bags are. Pretty sure. But Yes, Hermes has been one of the luxury brands that has remained resilient even amid economic headwinds. Wealthy consumers continue to have robust demand for Birkin bags and I have to admit, I've never heard of a country garden bag myself, Shaoning. But anyways, uh, even with the economic downturn, uh, Birkin bags are in hot demand. The story that we're looking at this week, though, and why Hermes has made headlines is for a slightly more eccentric reason. Uh, so the fifth generation uh, descendant of Thierry Hermes, who is Nicholas Puech, 80-year-old, Person who is who has a uh, investment, a twelve billion stake, twelve billion euro stake in this company. He plans to donate his uh, past inheritance to his gardener. Okay, let's rewind a little bit. Okay, because in the first place, he has no children himself. So what he did was he created a foundation and was going to bequeath his estate to this foundation. Um, but he's decided to make a U-turn and wants to actually give it to his fifty-one-year-old former. Gardener. So now the trust is saying, no, 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 please don't do this. You can't do this. And everyone's like, wow, what's happening? I can imagine that for a trust, which is essentially an NGO and a charity, right? I mean, this does take the rug out from under them. And uh, this trust was it's called the Isocrates Foundation, and it's meant to uh, preserve and protect the promotion of public debate, right? Yes. Uh, so suddenly to have, I suppose, their source of income taken away and uh, 
given to a, a gardener is a it's it's quite a, it's quite a shock to the system. Everyone's like, mm, what happened here? <laughs> uh, but the point is, isn't it this money he's and how he wants to do with what he wants to do with it? it does I'm sure there'll be some legal wrangling. So and it will cost bil- millions of dollars in legal fees. But it'll be interesting to see what the courts decide. Isn't your money your right to decide how to give it away? Indeed, right? For me, the story, it brings to mind um, how different wealthy families deal with their riches, I suppose. And You've been watching Succession, have you? You, you could look at <laughs> Succession, yes. But I was really thinking of, for example, the decision of the family behind Patagonia and how they're donating their entire fortune to the climate change Mm. effort, right? You've got families like the Gates uh, who set up the Gates Foundation to focus their wealth on philanthropic uh, activities. So uh, for me, it's curious to see how different uh, families what they do with their wealth and what they choose to do with their wealth. Well, if they forward. don't know what to do, you can always call me. I have some, I'm, I'm sure I can put it to good use. Not always on her mess. Well, it's 9.49 a.m. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with a look at more of the stories that have caught our eye this week. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 9.50 a.m. You are listening to The Morning Run. This is WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly recap show. You're with Shazana Shaoning and Anwar. Now, schools are on a much welcomed break for the end of year holidays, but we're going to be highlighting an education-related headline that will no doubt continue to be hotly debated way beyond the new year. And this is uh, regarding the Dual Language Program, or DLP, which was first introduced in 2016 to allow science and maths to be taught in English. And there was uh, a couple of different headlines across the different portals, right? So the one I'm looking at now is from uh, Free Malaysia Today, uh, where they're citing that the education minister said that the DLP program's implementation um, is subject to the ministry's decision to allow existing groups of students to continue DLP classes and that they must comply with existing guidelines for new groups of year one and form one students in the 2024-2025 session. I mean, the minister said that mastering, maintaining mastery of the mother tongue is essential for ensuring it's effective in cooperation in vernacular schools. And she expressed that ministry's commitment to continue to strive to dignify the mastery of BM, improve the quality English language teaching. And But the question is now, do we have enough teachers to relay the message of you know, teaching maths and science in English as well? Okay, aside from the practicalities of it, let's talk about the policy decision, right? Or at least the tone that the government is setting. Is it for DLP or is it against DLP? I'm confused because on one hand, the government saying it still exists, but the availability of it has really shrunk. I understand in KL, there are just five schools, according to this FMT article, right? Which are like Common Bukit Nana's Bukit Damansara, Vivekananda, Segambut, Ladang, and Ibrah. That's just five schools in the whole of KL that, that qualify. So back in October, um, Datin Nur Azima Abdurrahim, she's the chairman of PAGE, uh, the uh, parent uh, advocate for education. Uh, they, she, she observed that DLP schools and classes are being eradicated gradually and quite discreetly. So on one hand, you have parents probably those centered in urban areas especially, who want their kids to be taught um, science and maths and English. Um, But on the other hand, whether that is actually available in the schools that their kids are in, um, that's another matter. And I think what's causing concern um, moving in the year ahead is that even for schools that do have the DLP program, apparently there's also a push for students to go to a non-DLP class, even though the DLP program exists in that school. So Mm. there's also that I guess, dissatisfaction, you know, why should my kid go to a non-DLP class if the school offers DLP programs? And and I think that's where the uh, confusion and contentions are. 
the thing is, okay, if really the Malay, the the standard in terms of Malay is not high enough, should we not focus on that specifically rather than take away the DLP? We should be asking ourselves, why isn't the Malay language standard much higher? When it is our national language, it's enshrined in the federal constitution, it is the medium of instruction for most subjects in schools. So that was something that struck me as well. And, I, and a part of me wondered how much of that is actually due to how Malay language is being taught in schools. Mm. And the fact that, I mean, I'm sure it has changed from when I was in school, for example. But sometimes the focus tends to be on quite esoteric elements of the language use that don't really have practical everyday implications. And I can see how that uh, more exam-based uh, way of teaching could impact how a, how a student it could impact, you know, exams sometimes don't uh, translate into how actually well you use it in outside settings, for example. Um, but again, I, I, I would agree with you there, Shaoning, in that I don't see why that would be not teaching science and maths in English, mm. uh, especially if that's something that somebody has been used to already in, in their current, in their previous uh, way of learning. And, you know, what's worrying is that at the same time, there were the recent PISA scores that came out for Malaysia, right, which showed that we are lower when it, uh, than OECD average when it comes to our standards for maths and science. In the meantime, we're having this debate, Matt, you know, should it be Malay? Should it be in English? And the, it's, the, the consequence of it is that the standard, overall standard in Malaysia mm. has declined. So let's put it this way. I learned science and maths in Malay. I don't think that affected my understanding of uh, those subjects. Uh, but I can also see the value in learning something in English. But again, it has to be done in a very cohesive and uh, a very carefully thought out manner. And I feel that the way it's been implemented in the past has really just been a bit of a slapdash mm. way. And, and we're seeing that effects now, right? Because we're still arguing about this even after so many years of implementing this policy. And I think the longer this continues, it's just going to have implications for the students and for the teachers in the system. Yeah. So are we going to move away from politicizing at the education system? Is somebody going to say, okay, this is the right way to go and let's just keep at it? Because just like democracy, education takes a while for any policy to bear fruit. But it, there needs to be consistency so that teachers can be trained, schools are ready for it, parents accept the system, and also students, there's no flip-flopping here and there. All right, let's turn to another issue that has seen a lot of flip-flopping actually in recent years, and this is regarding the high-speed rail between Singapore and Malaysia. Of course, it continues to generate a lot of interest and debate, and the latest argument being put forth is by DAP member Tony Poa. Yeah, so he, in a Facebook posting, basically said it doesn't make sense to have the high-speed rail, and this is on the back of OAG, which I think is some uh, travel association. They found that flights from KLIA to Changi was the busiest route for 2023 at 4.9 million seats. But even if you factor in that number of seats versus the cost of the high-speed rail, which is supposed to be 80 billion, it just doesn't make economic sense. You cannot make your money back. I agree on that one because people talk about you know multiplier effect, job creation, and the towns. There'll be many stations along that route, and you know there'll be the towns in the, along the stations will expand. But then here's a good point that you know the, it will cost the government four billion in interest loan every year, and this is very costly on the taxpayer, and our funds are very stretched right now. I mean, I see, I see the argument he's putting forth. I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced, to be honest, because I am one of those, I think, who would actually... You would love the train, I really you? would. I have family in Singapore, and, you know, it, I feel that having a high-speed rail would definitely make it easier for mm. us to visit each other and, and to keep in contact. Um, so that part of me is very much in favour of it. Um, but, yeah, I can see how these calculations should be taken into account as we really decide whether or not the country 
needs a high-speed rail. Yeah, so maybe one way around this, if you just take away the hard mats, right, which is the 80 billion uh, ringgit f- cost to build it, plus the interest cost, assuming 5%, one way could be to consider moving towards private financing initiatives. And take, and so it not so much becomes a government project, but a private sector project. But the thing is, if it's a private sector project and it doesn't work out, the government shouldn't be the one to come in and bail it out, which mm. it has happened in the past, and then we go back to square one. So if the private sector can work out the mats, do the financing in the right way, and is willing to do it, Maybe. Why not? Which means let's not make hasty decisions, right? Let's really see the plans going into this. Uh, But uh, we do have about a minute or two left on the clock. Let's end on a light note in light of the Christmas season. And we have a story on Santa's reindeer. Yeah, Merriam-Webster wrote the issue about uh, Santa's reindeer. Santa, in the the song Rudolph Reynolds Reindeer, Santa's got eight reindeers. Prancer, Dancer, Dasher, Blixen. You know, of course, you know, Dancers was named after, you know, one that dashes. Dancer, one that dances, prancer, one that walks and moves in a spirit method. But there was one reindeer that was suspicious. Why was it named that way? Which is Vixen. Well, Vixen, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is a female fox, a shrewish, ill-tempered woman, or sexually attractive woman. No? I think it's just because it rhymes, right? <laughs> I, I was thinking Vixen rhymes with Blixen. Yeah, it's just rhymes. So, are, we, are we overthinking it? <laughs> I mean, and this is really cute because it is actually, if you want to know the the history of this, it comes back all the way from a poem all the way back in 1823. And it's um, the line for it when it refers to the reindeer is now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. Oh, Comet on, Cupid on, Dunder and Blixem. Not even Blixem. <laughs> well, I love the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer song and I will be singing it as we drive off into our weekend. Uh, happy holidays and a Merry Christmas to all those who celebrate. That's all we have for WTF on the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin up next and then it's over to Enterprise BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.